0: Will you turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 31? We're going to cover two chapters tonight, Numbers 31 and 32. These are the last major events of the book of Numbers. It really is only one event, but it has some parts to it. After this, from chapter 33 through 36 is more or less preparation for the conquest There's going to be a review of the wilderness wandering. There's going to be uh, some chapters assigning cities to the Levites and the cities of refuge. We're going to see the daughters of Zelophehad again. But all that is next week. We're actually going to finish our study through the book of Numbers next week, if you can believe that. It seems like we just started, at least it does to me. And we will be starting with Deuteronomy, probably not the week after, but not too long after that. We're going to start in the book of Deuteronomy. And as we've seen already, one of the big points of Numbers, I mean, the big event was Israel's refusal to enter the promised land, but Numbers functions in the Pentateuch as the transition from the old generation to the new one, and this is what we have now, and this is going to be the first battle for the new generation, and this will be in response to one of the sins that was committed by the previous generation. And what we see in this chapter 31 is going to be the battle itself and then the division of the spoil. And the next chapter is going to see uh, the division of the land that is gained in this time. So these two chapters really function as a template and a foretaste of what the book of Joshua is going to be like. With the battles, the division of the spoil, the division of the land... This is the first taste of that, so this is kind of a template of what will be seen, and the book of Joshua will not always go into as much detail with all of these, but I think this sets us an example of what's happening in between the lines in that book. Now, we're going to be discussing briefly, I mean, in the context of tonight, is of holy war and how the Lord is going to send his people off to do battle, and not just to do battle, but to conquer What are five different Midianite cities? And there are some lessons from this chapter for us to learn on that subject, because it is a difficult one for us, especially in our own culture. When we get to the book of Joshua, we're going to devote at least one week to a full apologetic of the conquest and the biblical concept of holy war. We're going to compare it and contrast it to jihad. We're going to talk about the Crusades. We're going to get into a little bit of biblical theology and even philosophy. We're not going to do all that tonight. I'm going to give little pieces of it tonight so that we understand where we're coming from. But uh, for tonight, we're really going to look at this as a historical record primarily. And secondarily, we're going to look at this as an example for our own life. Because as we just discussed in Sunday in Daniel chapter 10, we are living in the midst of spiritual warfare. And the Bible very frequently compares the Christian life to a battle. So when we see how God sent his people into a physical battle, there are lessons for us to draw about the spiritual battle that we all face. And the primary lesson for us tonight is that we must not settle for good enough or close enough in the Christian life because we're scared of the battle or because we're scared of the sacrifice that is going to have to be made. And the prize that God offers us, that promised land, whatever it may be for you, that prize is too great for you to trade in exchange for a quiet and safe life and existence. So let's begin. We're going to go through chapter 31, probably a little slower than chapter 32. Let's begin with these first four verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites, Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. Remember, God has already told Moses that his time is is just about up. So Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. Now, it's been a couple chapters since we saw this. There's been some things that have happened in the meantime. But do you remember the cycle of, of Balaam, the prophet who was summoned to curse the children of Israel? He was unable to do so. God prevented him from cursing the people. He ended up blessing them and cursing their enemies. But as we're going to see confirmed in verse 16, I'm not going to worry about spoiling it for you. Balaam, when he was unable to curse the people, Instead, advised the kings of Midian and Moab, who were in alliance at this time, he advised them to have their women go and seduce the Israelite men unto idolatry. That is to go down, try to seduce them sexually, into the worship of their gods, which their their false gods were often worshipped through sexual intercourse, very carnal religion. And that led to the plague that was stopped by Phineas. You remember the story where they're weeping before the, the sanctuary, the plague is going on, and this man named Zimri and his new Midianite girlfriend Cosby come through. In full view of everybody, and Phineas the priest goes into their tent and stabs them both. He runs them through with a spear, and that put a stop to the plague. Well, now God is ordering Moses to send the people on a retaliatory strike against the Midianites. Now, this is not full-scale warfare like we're going to see in the book of Joshua. This is not full mobilization. He says, a thousand warriors from each tribe. So that's 12,000. This is more what you would call a raid than an actual war because he's not going to wipe out the Midianites. We're going to see the Midianites quite a bit. And there were some of the Midianites that were allies of the nation of Israel, men like uh, Jethro, men like Hobab that we've read about. And there are going to be Moabites that are allied to them as well. Ruth is going to be a Moabite woman, but they're going to wipe out the cities that had participated in the seduction of the children of Israel. God uses words like avenge and vengeance in these verses. Now most readers, when they come to this section of Scripture, and when they come to the book of Joshua, or wherever you might come across it, where it talks about holy war, where God orders his people to go and execute people, when Samuel hacks Agag to pieces before the Lord, or when he's going to later tell them it's not enough to have executed the men and you also need to kill the women as well, because they participated in that sin. There's an immediate reaction to that, where we say, how could God possibly do this? I was reading in some of my, my commentaries, studying and preparing for this, and they're not all evangelical Christians, and I, I try to get a broad view without you know, wasting too much of my time. But even those that claim to be evangelical were saying things like, I don't know that this is really something God asked them to do. We don't understand how God could order them to do something like this. And they usually throw in a statement that tips their hand when they say, because obviously we know that war is wrong. But I'm going to tell you now, again, without diving into it too deeply, that is a cultural reaction to the text. It is not a biblical reaction. That is a cultural reaction. Nowhere in the Bible is it going to tell you that war is something that should never be engaged in. Now, there are commands like Matthew 5.39, where he tells us, if anyone strikes you on the one cheek, turn the other one to him. Exodus 20.13, the commandment says, thou shalt not kill. But it's very important to notice that these are personal instructions, This is about an insult being offered to you. The laws of the 10 commandments are about interpersonal relations. It's referring specifically to murder in that case. And it really bothers me when people describe what goes on in battle as murder, because those are distinct things from one another. There's a reason the English language has two different words. So does scripture, so does Hebrew, so does Greek. And not only that, it is plain from places like Romans 13, verse 4, passages like this one, that God has placed a sword in the hand of the king or of the state, if you want to put it that way. That the nations, which are ordained by God, have the power and the authority, and even in some cases the responsibility to engage in warfare against one another. Pacifism is the Bible's ideal, but the Bible makes abundantly clear that that war will not pass away until Christ Jesus returns. And even so, there will be rebellions until the sky is rolled up and the earth passes away and the new one comes. Until then, as we read in Daniel chapter 9, wars will continue until the end. We're going to see in the book of Joshua that the Lord is going to say, or excuse me, the book of Judges it's going to say God allowed certain adversaries to remain surrounding Israel because he wanted to make sure the young men knew how to wage war. Now These are things that we hear and so say, how could God say that? The real question is, why does it bother you? It's in your Bible. Now, there are two options here. Now, there are some say, I could never believe in a God that would order somebody to kill somebody else. Well, here's two options here. And I, I mostly and mainly aim this at, a, at an atheist that says something like, I can't believe in God because of look what he did here in this book. There are two options. Number one, either God ordered this raid against Midian or he did not. If God did not order this against Midian, then first of all, the scripture is a lie and we can't trust any of it. But that also means that this passage tells us nothing about God. So, an atheist who has a problem with this passage because God did it, well, if God didn't actually do it, then there is no God. But if God did order this war, then that tells us that by definition, it was the right thing to do, because God is omnibenevolent. We define good by what aligns with God and his character. We only know good because of God. So, the idea of us sitting in judgment upon God's commandments is absolutely anathema to the scriptures. Paul would say in Romans, who are you, O man, to question God? So I believe that God told them to do this, but it was the wrong thing to do. That doesn't fly, because God is the one who has revealed what is right and wrong to us. It doesn't make it pleasant. It doesn't mean that it was God's ideal, but in a sinful world, these are the kinds of things that have to happen. And let us not also forget that Israel was unique among the nations This was a unique time even in Israel's history. God had given the Amorites more than 400 years of time to repent, and they hadn't. And so God is raising up Israel to judge and wipe out these peoples as the hand of God. Unless you think that that's not fair and that's just some tribal idea that Israel made up, the same thing will happen to Israel later when God raises up Babylon and then raises up Persia and then raises up Rome. No one is exempt from that. I think that we are a nation that has lived for a very long time at peace, especially peace in our own soil. I think that that affects the way we think about these things. I think us reading about about warfare, about lots of people dying, I think it shocks us. And in one sense it should, but in another sense we can't let the fact that we have a weak stomach and we have not engaged with these things personally cause us to make determinations about it. Not only that, If I can say so kindly, there have always been Christian pacifists, but I think most of the modern Christian reaction to these things is leftover hippie theology. I think that movement and all of its attendant whatevers swept through the culture, and the idea of peace and love and flower power is still affecting the church to this day. I think there's also probably, if I can, without getting too deep into the weeds on this, there's also some latent Marxist influence there too, that everything America does is evil and everything we do is bad, so we can never have a war. And there's no such thing as a just war. And I think some of these ideas, without you know, affirming their sources, they trickle their way into how we read the Bible. And we say things like, well, obviously God would never allow war to happen. That is quite simply not what the Bible teaches. If you're going to come at this biblically, You're going to look at this and say, there are times when this is good and wonderful, noble things can happen in warfare. And sometimes even the hardest and saddest things that take place are of the will of God and are righteous. So I'm not going to get too much farther into that. We'll spend a whole day and maybe more talking about this in the book of Joshua. But it basically amounts to y'all, if God said it, then it's okay. And if you have a problem with that, you need to pray about it. If you want to take a personal lesson from this section here, if you want God's promises, you better be on God's side first. How does that track? Well, because Israel couldn't just say, we're going to go fight whoever we want and God will be with us. They had to fight the wars that God sent them to. Same thing for you and me. You can't just say, I can do anything I want and God will bless me because I prayed a prayer one time and raised my hand in church. You have to do things that God tells you to do. And not only that, to do things God's way. And that's what we're going to look at as we go through this. So some stuff for you to chew on and ponder and think about. And I didn't go too far into the maybe a lot of the biblical reasons for these things. But just make sure we're always checking our ideas and, and that we're being Bereans in Scripture. Verse 5. The Lord said, we're going to go to war. So, verse 5, "...there were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male." They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reva, the five kings of Midian. And they also, underline this one, killed Balaam, the son of Beor with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the places where they lived and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast, then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. So the army is mustered, thousand from each tribe. There are some who believe that that word thousand is a term that is used in this context to refer to something like a regiment or a unit. Uh, I don't think that that is the case, but I think this is the passage that makes the best case for it, that it's not just 12,000 men, but it's 12,000 units of soldiers going into battle. This is something that you might see in your footnotes or if you have a study Bible there. But Phineas is going to lead the charge. Phineas is the one that had struck the blow against the, the two lovers that were violating God's commandment. And he's going to lead the charge. It says he's got the vessels of the sanctuary and the two trumpets. The trumpets are those silver trumpets that they would use to cause the the group to get up and march. And the vessels of the sanctuary does not specify. Could be that they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. Uh, This is... Not described explicitly anywhere except in the time of the priest Eli when the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen. So, who knows? Maybe they had some other things from the tabernacle. Maybe they had incense. It does not specify, but it's entirely possible that they took the Ark with them, like when they walked around Jericho. But it does seem to be to me, when they walk around Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant, that's a special, unique thing. This is Moses' last battle before his death, as we saw in verse 2. He says, after this, you're going to be gathered to your fathers. And they're going to conquer these five kings of Midian. Now, most countries don't have five kings in the modern day. This is part of how we know what we know about Midian. Midian did not seem to be a formalized kingdom like, say, Edom might have been or even as Moab appears to have been, because we read of one king of Moab and now five kings of Midian. Midian, we believe, historically was a coalition of city-states or even nomadic peoples, which is why you can have five kings here. One of them is Zor, and we know from before that Zor was the father of Cosby, who was the princess that Phineas killed in the tent with Zimri, the Israelite. They go to war and they sack all five of these cities. They destroy the cities. They plunder all of their possessions. They kill every man that they find and they bring them back to Moses. And this is going to be the story throughout the conquest. It's going to almost get tedious in the book of Joshua to read about beating up this city and then taking care of this city. It's victory to victory to victory. And in fact, unless Israel had committed some kind of sin before the battle, they never lost. We're never given an explanation in the Bible of Israel losing a war unless there was some kind of sin or rebellion in the camp. When God was with them, they were unstoppable. And if we're going to apply this to our own lives, the same thing is true for those that are going to fight God's battles. Remember, you can't just pick whatever battle you want. But if you're walking in the commandments of God and you're going to walk in it his way, then victory is what awaits you as well. Romans 8.37 says, in all these things, you might translate that against all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that. That's one of those analogies that can unsettle people. I don't like the idea of a conqueror because conquerors have done terrible things. Okay, but that's, that's the analogy the Bible uses. Somebody that marches into occupied territory, destroys what he finds, and sets himself up as the authority, the new king. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. Those who fight in the strength of the Lord are guaranteed victory over sin. Guaranteed victory over Satan. This is how the New Testament can say things like, if you are in Christ, you will not sin. Now, there's there's obviously forgiveness for the times that we do sin, but the Bible does not speak about us struggling and slogging through the Christian life and hoping to gain a little bit of daylight against our flesh. It talks about ultimate victory. And we need to know this, because the problems that we face and the problems that we struggle with, very often we think that they are beyond God's capability. That we need something else. We need to do in addition to God. And we think that this is just kind of something we do to check the box that I did my religious thing. Now I'm going to go handle my problem. But in reality, those who pick the right fight in Jesus and fight the right way in Jesus will only ever be victorious. And I don't mind saying that. We have to remember that. People that will will say you shouldn't make such sweeping statements like that because what about people that are struggling? All right, yeah, there are people who struggle. But I believe that when we are struggling, there's either a victory right around the corner or we're running up against something that God is trying to teach us. Because I've seen it in my own life and just about everybody I know, it's been the same way. Constant defeat is not God's will for you. It might not be time for victory yet, but victory is a coming. If you are in Christ Jesus. Just before we move on, I just want to say, I want to make sure that we remember to retain that framing of our problems. We get in the bad habit of saying, yeah, 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 God, God, Jesus is going to help, I know. But let's, let's really, we've got to solve, solve this problem. We've got to work on it. Let's be realistic. Don't say that to me because you make me feel bad if you say that I'm going to have victory, but I'm really suffering. No, we've got to retain that framing of our problems, that there is only victory awaiting us in Christ Jesus. So I, I don't accept that it's wrong to call a Christian to walk in the joy that God has given them. That's just not fair to people. People are going to get hurt by that. Well, no, they won't. I don't believe that. I believe that God is able to answer anything that you can bring his way. And there's no foe that can stand against him. Verse 13. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let the women live? Behold these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor and so the plague came upon among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves. Moses was angry Because they had spared the women. Very chivalrous thing to do. We say, you know, right? Save the women and children. It's not right when you do this. But this was a unique situation. The women of Midian were guilty of this sin. So you want to talk about equality? Here's some equality for you. The Lord is saying, yeah, the men were guilty. They they came up with the idea, but the women went along with it. The, the Lord, there, there's your answer right there for people that want to say, well, we live in an oppressive structure and that's why we act this way. God is going to hold you accountable for how you act, not for how the structure around you is trying to compel you to act. So, so much for that idea. But he says, these are the women that came in and seduced your sons, caused those sons to die in a plague. And remember, we were all weeping and crying out to God. They did this. They set up a culture in their in their cities, that this was the kind of thing you did and it was okay. They had not trained up the young women to modesty and to loving their husbands and to taking care of their families. Instead, they taught them that it was okay to be promiscuous and seductive if you were doing it for a good cause. So, no, they will not be allowed to live. And it confirms in verse 16, by the way, that Balaam was the one who had induced the Midianites to do this, which is why it said they put him to sword in the earlier verses. Now, that doesn't imply that he just died in the battle. The implication there is that they caught him and executed him because he had brought this upon them. Not that they were not guilty, but they had already paid for what they had done. Now it's time for the tempter to pay for what he had done. Chivalry did not excuse them from God's judgment, which is exactly what this was. This is not a blanket permission from God that you are allowed to do things like this in war. They were explicitly enacting the hand of God here. And this is justice. Justice is a hard thing. I've said this before. Those folks that want to stand on justice as the calling card of their life, are you really sure you want to get everything you deserve? The only ones that were allowed to live were virgin girls who could not have participated in the sin of Midian against Israel. And they were to be kept alive either as servants or as brides for their sons. And we've talked at great length of what this would have looked like. It wasn't as if they could send these girls home because their homes had been destroyed. And while we are not entirely comfortable with this, this is the way it was done. And we've seen before how this is not entirely equivalent to what we saw in our own country But I'll leave you to go look that up on your own. This was holy war. This was not just Israel upset with their neighbors. This was God's vengeance. And we see here that God's vengeance is total, it is fierce, and it's fair. And that's what makes it so terrifying. And this is how we've got to be with ourselves to carry on this application to our own personal lives. You cannot, if you want to say, I've got to overcome this sin in my life, or I've got to overcome this temptation or this problem that I've got, I'm going to do it God's way. And the Lord tells us that we've got to put these things away. You cannot choose to save pieces of your old life that you really like. Because what will happen? You're going to leave alive the pieces that caused the trouble in the first place. If somebody is struggling with addiction... Okay, yeah, I know, i got to get rid of all this stuff, but I still want to keep these friends. It's like, these friends are the ones that got you into this stuff. Are you crazy? Well, yeah, she, she's trouble for me, so I'm not going to hang out with her anymore, but I'm going to keep her number. Why? Well, maybe there's going to be an emergency. Yeah, that's why. He says, you can't keep these women around. These are the women that caused the trouble in the first place. They'll do it again. They deserve to die for what they did. And that's how the Bible describes personal self-discipline in the Spirit as well. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Don't manage it. Don't try to get a handle on it. Don't try to wrestle it to the ground. Kill it. Kill it. You know, I, maybe animal lovers will dislike me for this, but... It drives me crazy whenever I'm watching some nature show and like a giant cobra gets into the house or something and they catch the cobra and then just like let it loose in the backyard. It's like, kill that thing, man. What's wrong with you? It's like, well, we want to let it go back out. It's, like, it's going to come right back. It's like that with your sin, right? If you're a snake lover, you know, God bless you. But it's, you can't do that with your sin. I'm going to leave this piece alive just in case. Because it's not technically a sin, so if I keep it in my life, one day I'll be able to control it. No, you won't. Put to death what is earthly in you. If you want victory over sin, you want victory over the devil, but you won't give up the things you love, you're going to lose. I'll do anything, Lord, but here's a list of things that I won't do. That's where Satan's going to get you, man. That's where the beachhead is going to be. If you're unwilling to attack that part of the map, you're unwilling to drop bombs on that part of the world, then you know what? You're going to remain stuck. If there's places that you're like, well, we won't do that, then that's where Satan's going to hide. The cost of discipleship is everything you own. Matthew 13, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price that a man saw it and sold everything he had to get it. That's what it costs. And that's what it's worth. The kingdom of God. Oh, I want to be in that promised land so bad. Okay, everything you've got on the table right now. now. I don't know that God requires that of me. What did Jesus say though, man? Crucified with Christ, Paul would say. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. If not, he said, you don't deserve to follow me. Well, this just doesn't, this, everybody else gets away with this. That's fine. Let them do what they're going to do. The Lord has said, let everything die so that you can rise again to serve me. Verse 19, in camp outside, this is still Moses talking to the, to the soldiers, in camp outside the camp seven days, whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, things like leather, all works of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, this is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, silver, the bronze, the tin, the iron, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with the water for impurity." And whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. And whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. You must wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. The Lord said to Moses, Take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast, you and Eleazar the priests and the heads of the fathers' houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. And levy for the Lord a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of five hundred of the people and of the oxen and of the donkeys and of the flocks. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to the Lord. And from the people of Israel's half you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the people, the oxen, the donkeys, the flocks, the cattle, and give them to the Levites who keep guard over the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses." So this is now how to re-enter the camp, how to deal with the things they had taken. First thing they had to do, they had to stay outside the camp for a week. They had been in contact with dead bodies, therefore they were unclean. If you go back to Numbers chapter 19, we have that ceremony of how to be cleansed from contact with a dead body. That's where they had the ashes of the red heifer with the water of purification. Hopefully you remember that. And not only them, but every piece of plunder had to be purified. Anything that was metal had to pass through the fire. Now, this could just mean that it was entirely melted down, or perhaps it was just a ceremonial passing through the fire. Everything else, by water, same thing, the waters of purification. And they also had to divide the spoil. So if, maybe you didn't catch this, but what God said is, take all the plunder, divide it in half. Half of it goes to the soldiers, half of it goes to the citizens that didn't go to fight. Then he says, the Lord is going to get a tribute from each of those halves. One five hundredth of the soldier's share shall go to the Lord. One fiftieth of the citizen's share will go to the Levites. So this way, the soldiers who fought get the most. The the citizens get the next most. God gets a share of what the soldiers did. And the Levites, who were not part of the regular tribal census, got the rest. And it can be assumed that these are the same proportions that they will use in the conquest in the book of Joshua. They were trophies, there were plunder and spoil that they gained through this battle. And if you want to progress in your walk with the Lord, progression in your walk with the Lord is based upon your sacrifice of the trophies that you gain along the way. Everything you gain in your walk with Jesus, everything you gain through your life has to be sacrificed to the Lord. It has to be purified. It has to be sanctified and given over to Him. God gets everything from your life. That's what we're supposed to do. Romans 12 calls us a living sacrifice, even your body. The things you are allowed to keep are the things that God gives back. Let me say that again. Everything goes to God, and the things you are allowed to keep are the things that God gives back. I love the example of Keith Green, who is a Christian musician in the 70s and 80s. And uh, he had been his whole life, he was a child you know, prodigy. He was signed to some record labels when he was a kid. And then as he got a little older, he went out on his own. And always his whole life, I'm going to be a musician. That's what I'm going to do. And then he got saved. He's like, now I'm going to be a Christian musician. But he was struck in his conscience at one point in his life because he said, I never once stopped and asked if that's what God wanted me to do. So he said, God, you can have my music. And I'm not going to take it back unless you give it back to me. And so what he did is he no longer played anything in public. He no longer was trying to chase record deals. He only did what he was already contracted to do for his work until there was a time, I think it might have been more than a year or so later, it was some months at least, where uh, he was asked to play at a church, at a ministry charity event, and he truly felt from the Lord, God gave me my my music back. I love that because he's, I'm going to take the thing that, that means the most to me and give it to God. And he ended up writing a song called, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. And verse one, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. Verse two, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. And verse three, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. And I love that. And it's a great example of this. You don't use God's power to make your life better. It will get better, but that cannot be your motivation. We, we talked to the gentleman in the prison who a lot of them have to get over the hurdle. It's like, okay, so if I follow Jesus, he's going to get me out of here, right? And it's like, well, maybe, but I, I'm not going to sit here and promise you that. I mean, some people do, and they make guys bitter in there, which is a, a cry and shame. But it's like, who knows what God's going to do? The first thing you've got to do is give your life over to him now. Everything you've got goes to Jesus. And whatever he enables you to liberate in the battle of life, you give back to him. And if you have something in your life that you don't feel like you can give to God, I can't sanctify that. I can't say that I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. Then you can't keep it. If it can't be sanctified, it can't be brought into the camp. Verse 32. Now the plunder remaining of the spoil that the army took was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all. Women who had not known man by lying with him. And the half, the portion of those who had gone out in the army, numbered 337,500 sheep. And the Lord's tribute of sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 30,500, of which the Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. And Moses gave the tribute, which was the contribution for the Lord, to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. From the people of Israel's half, which Moses separated from that of the men who had served in the army, now the congregation's half was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, and 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. From the people of Israel's half, Moses took one of every 50, both of persons and of beasts, and gave them to the Levites who kept guard over the tabernacle of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Maybe a little boring for you to read, but this is the... This is the list of the things they won in their first big victory. It was a big deal to them. It should be a big deal to us, too. So cattle and captives, not counting the gold and silver yet. That'll come next. Uh, As I said, there are lots of different rules regarding captives that would have applied here. Most of these young ladies would have been brought into the household and then eventually married to one of the sons. Uh, Marriage was not a super romantic thing back then. You kind of grew into the love, if that's what you wanted And uh, there were lots of other, you know, one of the reasons God said you have to marry those women was to prevent the, unfortunately, widespread rape that would happen in most battles in ancient times when they would sack these cities. It It was horrible. But what the Lord would tell them is, if you find a woman that you want to marry, you can take her home, you can let her mourn for three months for her father, and then if you still want to marry her, you can marry her. He's like, I'm going to give you all a chance to calm down before you act on something that you're not wanting to do. And this is, you know, we, it is a little funny to talk about like that. But if you ever have read history before and see what happens when these sieges would break, the Lord is doing a righteous thing in this regard. 675,000 sheep. <laughs> That's a lot of sheep, isn't it? It is impossible to calculate the blessings that come to those who serve the Lord faithfully. Psalm 84 says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I love that verse. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now you might look at your life and you want the promised land, you want the blessings, you want everything that God can give you, but you don't like the idea of fighting hard to get it. You don't like the idea of even if I do fight hard and I win these victories, I've got to give it back to God. And if if it's not God's will, it's got to be crucified, never to be had ever again. But I'm telling you, y'all, the blessings will far outweigh what you lose. Not just the physical blessings, which are real. The Lord loves to shower blessings upon his people. And there are some that have made way too much of that teaching. It doesn't mean that it's not true. God delights to honor his people. And beyond that, there's joy in the Lord. What do you think some of these incredibly successful millionaires would be willing to give for joy in their life? I mean, you see, especially now with social media, we're able to see what's going through a lot of these folks' heads. Are they, are they at peace in their life? How much do you think they'd be willing to give up if they had peace? How about success Does the Lord give success to his people? He sure does. Because he gives you a a pattern and a path to follow in your life that is sent from heaven. And there's no way it can be thwarted. How would you like to know you're on the right path and never have to worry about it? Forgiveness. And there are people, y'all, that are even in the church that are bound up and don't believe that they could ever be forgiven. You don't know what I did, man. You don't know what I have done. And I won't even tell you because it would shock you. The Lord is not shocked. What's shocking is the fact that the Son of God would die on the cross to pay for those things. And of course, at the end, eternal life. That's what Paul's about in Philippians. He's like, man, all the rest of this stuff is dung. It's the stuff you see running in the sewers. What do I want that for? Eternal life is waiting on the other side. The knowledge of God. The blessings are greater than what you lose. So we're talking about, oh, you've got to crucify your flesh, crucify your. I'm like, oh, yeah, we get real serious. But we're not doing that just because. We're doing it because we're trying to gain something. What we gain is infinitely better than what we lose. But those things are not going to come to those who are not willing to fight God's way. Let's finish this chapter here, verse 48. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands and of the commanders of the hundreds, came near to Moses and said to Moses, Your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. And we have brought the Lord's offering, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and beads, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. Again, referring to the uncleanness they had brought upon themselves in the battle. And verse 51, Moses and Eleazar the priest received from them the gold, all crafted articles, and all the gold of the contribution that they presented to the Lord from the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men in the army had each taken plunder for himself. So it seems as that all of the gold and silver went to the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. Kind of like these were our first victories. All the officers, they come together and they're delivering the tribute and they say, we didn't lose one man in this battle. 12,000 men go out to fight against five different cities and every one of us came home safe. This is not going to be the case in all of Israel's battles. The battles were real, like we shouldn't deceive ourselves on that. But this first one, the hand of the Lord was so strong upon them, they didn't lose anybody. Contrast that to the failure of the previous generation that was too afraid to go and enter the promised land. And then when they did, they were chased away on the first day. Continuing what we were just talking about, there is only victory for the ones who are going to serve the Lord, and you don't really lose anything that's that important. If you're afraid to lose something, and how do I know if I'm afraid to lose something? What in your life would you be scared to get rid of if you had to get rid of it? What if you know? What if the Lord said to you, like He said to Ezekiel, "I'm going to take your wife from you"? What would you do in that situation if that happened? What about your job? What about your reputation? What about the nest egg that you've built up for yourself? What if the nation were to fall and you'd have to watch it fall? The things that cause a pit in your stomach. The answer to the fear of that loss is that loss is the only way to liberty in the grace of Christ. 1 John 5 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Again, military metaphors here. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is, that, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, John is obviously not talking about military victory over the world here. He's talking about spiritual victory over the world. And this happens on a personal level. In Christ, we are liberated from the worldly system of wickedness. You know, there's been a lot of talk about that lately, about how we've got to break the system, and you can't see the system when you're inside it. And it's like, you don't know how true you are being right now, but it's way worse than you think. It transcends culture, it transcends time, it transcends everything. It's the, the lie of sin that over, overwhelms everything that the world we're living in and the things that we worry about and the things that we fear and the things that we prioritize and the dangers and the trials and the wickedness that happens, all of that is part of the same devilish system. But if you are in Christ and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you, you die to all of that and you're raised apart from it. That's why Peter talks about us as sojourners, that we're passing through. We don't really belong here anymore. Christians don't fear death. They don't fear death. And not like some proud, you know, cowboy in the West that's like, everybody's going to die someday. Like, we're, we're not afraid. We're kind of looking forward to death in a lot of ways. You read the old letters of Ignatius, one of the church fathers who was, who was arrested and was on his way to Rome, and he starts writing these letters as he goes. And, and all these letters, he's saying things like, I've been looking forward to this day my whole life. At one point he said, if, if they put me in the arena with the wild beasts and the lions prove tame. He says, I'll grab the lion by the beard and shake it until it eats me. <laughs> now That might seem a little extreme to you, but I hope the point is well taken. He's like, man, I'm gonna get to go be with Jesus. Yeah. Right, it's like Paul said in Philippians, I, I can't decide if I would rather go home to be with the Lord, or if I'd rather stay here and help you out. This is more useful for me to stay here, so I'll do that. But if I end up losing my head because Caesar doesn't like me, you know what, I'm okay with that. Christians don't fear loss because we've already lost everything in Christ. We've already decided that we have nothing and we don't need anything. There's nothing you can take away with us in order to pressure us. We're not afraid of pain because Jesus Christ already suffered on the cross for us. And we know that that's sanctification. The Holy Spirit dwells inside us, guiding us. We're not alone in the universe. God is with us and in us and upon us. So what do we have to fear? And if you want to gain that victory, here's the thing, Christian. Your victory in Christ is in direct proportion to your submission to Christ. How much victory do you have? How much have you submitted to Jesus? How can I say that? Because Jesus never loses. Jesus will never be defeated. So if you find yourself constantly defeated, you're not walking with Christ yet. And I can say that because I've seen it in my own life, man. Well, Lord, I'm doing everything I can. And God goes, don't give me that. You know what you need to do. Lower, Tyler. Let go of more things. You're not far enough. You're not as close as I'd like you to be. Oswald Chambers, who I love, he's got a devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. He talks over and over again about getting lost in Christ. It's like we're the, he says, your, your personality doesn't change, but your identity changes. Your individualism changes. And now it's your life is just Christ living through you like Galatians 2.20. But so many would rather absorb casualties in order to preserve the possibility of a dalliance with the Midianites. If it costs everything to defeat these Midianites, you say, okay, well, I don't know if I'd want to do that. I'm willing to lose some things every now and then spiritually if I can continue in this sin. And that's a shame. And we're going to see that there were some tribes of Israel that I don't know if we can say they were totally in the wrong, but they certainly were not totally in the right either, and they had a similar attitude that we're going to be warned against. So chapter 32, battle is over, spoil has been divided. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jezer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eleala, Sebam, Nebo, and Baon. The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not Take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel." For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. Phew. Remember, Moses is about 120 years old at this point. This is that fiery old prophet getting angry with these men because Gad and Reuben preferred to stay on the plains of Moab to raise their cattle. That place geographically is up in the hills, but it levels out into a steppe that is ideal for raising cattle. And Moses was furious about this. He compared them to their fathers that didn't want to go into Kadesh Barnea because they had asked him, we don't want to cross the Jordan. And he's questioning their honor. He says, how can you let somebody else go out and fight and watch that and not step up and do something about it? You're going to back off, and so now it's the 10 tribes of Israel trying to conquer the land that God intended for all of you? Do you think that you can just break this coalition at any time? And it's hard for me to say precisely because of how this chapter ends, if these people were 100% in the wrong here, because they weren't rebelling against Moses, as we'll see, but they're asking. But I think that Moses' reaction tells us something about what was going on in their hearts. He's like, you're just looking out for yourself. You're not looking out for your brothers. You're willing to distance yourself from this inheritance that we've been waiting for for almost 500 years now. Many get so attached to what they have, they lose their appetite for what God offers them. You ever been on your way somewhere and you're not sure if they're going to serve dinner or not? And so you say, all right, let's just stop at McDonald's, Taco Bell, and let's just top it off. and Let's just see. And then you show up and there's just some glorious spread that somebody's laid out for you. And you're like, oh, no, what'd I do that for? What did I have a McChicken for? What did I have a Taco Bell burrito for when there was going to be steak? There was going to be lobster and I missed out on all of it. Maybe that's happened to you before. And that is what we can do spiritually. We fill up with all the junk so that when it's time for something great, we just don't have the stomach for it. Revelation 3, Jesus himself rebukes the church of Laodicea for this attitude. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Isn't it amazing that there are some Christians today that, that think it a virtue to say, I'm not a, I'm not a radical Christian, but you no, know, I'm not one of those crazy skeptics either. I'm just kind of somewhere in the middle. I kind of think that's the ideal. You know, Jesus said, I wish that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That word spit You might want to translate vomit. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. (laughs) Hot coffee is delicious. Iced coffee is also delicious. The worst kind of coffee though is the one that's been sitting there for about 36 hours in the coffee pot. It's not hot, it's not cold, it's not good for anything. And this is what the Lord said the Laodicean church was like. And as I said, American Christians have normalized lukewarm hearts. We kind of have this this strange democratic way of looking at spirituality. We say that if you are like everybody else, then you're you're doing good. We kind of grade on the curve. like If most Christians are here, then this is normal. Not letting God dictate for us what is right. And in fact, Jesus said that most Christians would not last, would not go the distance. We never give in to that. Some people, they just can't envision the victory that God has for them. And they hate the thought of letting go. Because Jesus doesn't always show us what's coming next. Usually he tells us to let go first. He tells Peter, leave your nets first. He tells the widow at, at Zarephath, he says, you give me some, that last bit of oil and flour first. And then I'll provide for you. And there are some that are scared to do that. And instead, they said, rather cash in on what I have rather than let God take me somewhere else. Because they know that the cost of that greatness is going to be the little bit that they have. Lesser things will bury you, y'all. The lesser things that you have that are bring you happiness and bring you joy and make you smile a little bit but it's nothing in comparison to what Jesus can offer you. And this is why when we hear the stories of these great men of God, like wow, I want to be just like that. And then you find out what it took for them to get there and you say never mind, I'm kind of happy where I am. And you know what this is? This is this is if you want to stick with that food analogy I was using earlier. You know, it's like I'd rather not acquire a taste for holy things. Your palate's not very refined. You can't taste the difference. What, what difference does it make? Hamburger, filet mignon, it's just meat, whatever. It's like, don't you understand that one of these is way better than the other one? I'm not saying that this is bad either. I'm just saying it's not as good. They say, well, I, don't want, I can't taste the difference. Like, well, you need, you need to learn how to do that. Well, I don't really care to do that. Because I'm happy with what I have. It's like, but you don't understand your capacity for joy and happiness and love will grow in Jesus. So yes, you'll be full to the brim, but if your cup is this big, you're missing out when the Lord wants to expand your capacity to enjoy Him and to enjoy life. The blessings of God, sometimes we think, if I just be a Christian long enough, all the blessings will come my way. Like it's just natural, just happens. But That's not the case. The blessings of God are hard won in the battlefield of the Spirit. They don't just kind of happen. The Lord calls us to go out and take what he has ordained for us, to fight back against the enemy and the wicked one. And you've got to have a vision of the victory that is greater than what you're experiencing right now. Verse 16. So that's Moses. delivers a rather strong rebuke. He called them a brood of sinners. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east." So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before them, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure, memory verse, your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what you have promised. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will pass over every man who is armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord orders. So Gad and Reuben come back with a solution. They don't rebel against Moses. They say, how about this? We'll build the cities here, leave our livestock, leave our families here. The soldiers will go to war. In fact, we'll be in the van. We'll be at the very front of the army. We'll be the tip of the spear so that nobody can say that we didn't fight for our brothers. But then we'll return home after the battle is won. And Moses agrees to do that. He gives them stern warnings, though. Verse 23, your sin will find you out. And I could preach just that verse. Maybe I will someday. Don't think you can keep sin secret, friends. It will come and get you. It doesn't mean that somebody's going to walk in on you necessarily one day, but it means you're going to start to see the effects of that sin in other areas of your life. He also makes sure that Eleazar and Joshua are very clear with what's up with Gad and Reuben. He says, this is what's going to happen. Don't let them trick you later. And this is why in the rest of the Old Testament, there are Israelites living outside the boundaries of the Jordan River. And that region to the east is called Gilead. Anytime in your Bible where it mentions Gilead, it is this territory to the east of the Jordan where Gad, Reuben, and as we're going to see, half the tribe of Manasseh settled. All I'm going to say on this bit, and we're going to be wrapping it up here, spiritual warfare is not a solo activity. We need each other. You need brothers and sisters to stand with you. You need what everybody in this room has to offer. And I'll go beyond that. Everyone in this room needs what you have to offer. And if you are withholding that from yourself or withholding yourself from them, the rest of us will be weaker for it. The church is not just a, a club, man. It's a barracks. It's a home base. It's a fortress where we come together to strategize and resupply and rally our spirits before we get back out there. Don't isolate yourself. Because if you isolate yourself, you're going to start to doubt the need for the battle in the first place. What was I doing this for again? And that's not you getting over it. That's the enemy beginning to blind you. We'll finish the chapter now. Verse 33. And Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land and its cities with their territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. And the people of Gad built Dibon, Adaroth, Arawer, atroth Shofan, Yazer, Yagbeha, that's a great name, Beth Nimrah and Beth Haran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. And the people of Reuben built Heshbon, Eleala, Kiriathim, Nebo, and Baal-Meon. Their names were changed because Baal-Meon, they're not going to name cities after these false gods. And Sibma. And they gave other names to the cities that they built. And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Havoth Jair. And Nobah went and captured Kenoth and its villages and called it Nobah after his own name." Moses here formally distributes the land east of the Jordan to Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. I really had never loved that translation. It should say half of the tribe of Manasseh because there will be some of the clans of Manasseh that settle in the promised land proper, and the other half is going to be in Gilead. They conquered, rebuilt, and renamed these cities to honor God, which is what is going to happen in the conquest. Through this battle... God was eradicating evil. We're going to talk about this more, but the the Amorites was a perverse, wicked generation, a perverse, wicked nation. We think of people like Attila the Hun or Adolf Hitler, and we say, well, yeah, they deserve to be destroyed. It's on that level, friends. These were wicked people. And not only that, but God, for all the nations, was establishing the testimony of the truth about God that would eventually lead to the coming of the Messiah himself. That's why he gave them this inheritance. And you have an inheritance in Christ too. Romans 8 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is the inheritance of Christ? Everything that God has. Right? We we believe that, as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They're in that triune unity. So there is nothing that the Father has that Christ does not have access to. Therefore, there is nothing God has that you do not have access to in Jesus' name. Because you are an heir of God. But your ability to enjoy your inheritance is based on your obedience. And this is not just a someday inheritance and kingdom come. That's true. But access today to the blessings of God. The joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, the blessings of God. But in order to receive it, you must suffer, as Paul said. Now, in his day, suffering was the very real thing, meaning I'm willing to be persecuted and even executed for Jesus. It also included things like denying the flesh, included things like bearing the reproach of the world. And for us, it means losing the things that are holding us down. When God acts in the world, he plays for keeps. We even read this and you're like, oh my gosh, the Lord is going to execute all these people? Yes, because God doesn't mess around. God's like, this is wickedness and I'm going to eradicate it. I'm going to use my people to do it. So are you ready to play for real spiritual stakes in your life? We saw in Daniel chapter 10 that there are princes of the power of the air all around us. We know from Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We live in a spiritual battlefield. We have no choice but to engage spiritually in warfare. If you are ready to strike down the flesh, give up everything, and only hold on to what God gives you back, then your inheritance will be grand and your victory will be complete. Or you can settle for less less stress, less obligation spiritually, but you will also have less victory along the way. We always try to ride the fence. How much of the world can I hold on to while still technically being a Christian? Don't do that. Go all in. I pray that we will find out the limits of what God has for us by placing no limits upon what we will give to Him. Because Jesus placed no limits on what He gave up for us. There is an immense wonderful inheritance waiting for you in Christ. Don't settle for less.